And I stood outside that posh hotel opposite Harvey Nichols and looked across the road into the windows. And in one of the windows, they'd taken like a whole truckload of our porridge and they'd made a sculpture out of our porridge pot. The whole window in Harvey Nichols. And it was completely out of the blue. I didn't know anything about it. It wasn't a PR opportunity that I'd paid a PR to get us. And I just remember standing there with all the traffic going past, like on my own. And again, there was no social media to report. There's no camera, nothing. Just standing there thinking, a few years ago, that was just a thought in my mind. And that product now exists, it's manufactured, it's creating jobs in a factory in the north of England. In a small way, you're putting meals on tables. And Harvey Nichols, like one of the fanciest stores on the planet, think that it's beautiful enough to put in the windows. Welcome back to the Audience Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Nikki Hutchison, and today I'll be talking to Fleur Emery of Real Work, the online membership democratizing learning for women. Fleur has a wealth of knowledge, having grown both product and service-based businesses and tried lots of different marketing methods along the way. Let's dive in. Hi, Fleur. Welcome to the Audience Growth Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself and give us a brief outline of your career so far? Hi, Nikki. Thank you very much for having me. I'm Fleur Emery. I'm the founder of Real Work, the online membership democratising business learning for women. I come to Real Work having spent just under 15 years in industry. I started an independent food brand called Grasshopper Porridge a long time ago before independent brands sort of were a thing. I started a craft beer business called Green and Pleasant, had lots of ups and downs, have consulted for other women's startups, some of them who are doing brilliantly well, which is exciting, particularly now. There's a couple of them who are absolutely taking off and done a bit of lecturing at UCL on business and branding. That's kind of it. So when do you think you first realised you wanted to be an entrepreneur rather than an employee? I didn't know what one was. And I just got sacked a lot. I think that's a really common story with successful entrepreneurs, isn't it? I was unemployable. And I was really confused by it because I'd turn up at places and I'd be entry level. I'd be the least important person in the room. (laughs) Like I worked in a bank in the city and um, the boss of the entire floor would come in and everyone would like hustle around like Jesus was in the building. And then um, I'd sort of speak up and ask him questions and things and people would be like, can't do that. Terrible questions. In that banking job, I used to say things like, what does this company actually do? (laughs) I can imagine how that went down. In that situation, I blinked. And as my eyelids opened, I found myself in a side room with four lawyers facing me. And then magically, I was home in time for neighbours just on the sofa. Ejected onto the pavement. (laughs) Yeah, without even realising. All just happened magically. So you touched briefly at the beginning there, about these couple of businesses that you've run in the past, both product-based. How does the experience of growing those businesses compare to growing real work now, a service-based business? Well, the main difference I would say is not in the sort of the modelling and what I'm selling, although not having a supply chain isn't a great relief. You know, when you set up a food or drinks business, you just have these massive costs in the front end, which is absolutely nerve jangling. Plug all this cash in and even the best of them don't break even sort of till halfway through year two. And you're usually sunk about 100 grand by then. So it's pretty terrifying having to buy sort of like 15,000 branded cups and stuff like that. 
So it's great not to have the physical stuff to curate and manage. But in terms of my personal experience of the difference, I didn't know what I was doing then. And there was no one to help, which is why real work exists. There was no community of independent brands. There was hardly any internet. There were leaflets from the library. I mean, it was just like the Wild West. And we were just stood in the middle of this huge industry, just surrounded by men with moustaches telling us we couldn't do things. So it's an absolute luxury to be able to connect with other women who are starting businesses. It's a luxury to have crowdfunding. I get very excited about crowdfunding. And then there's people who are quite critical of it. And I get quite uppity. And I say, you don't know what it was like, literally going back and forth to banks and people who just said no, they just, just no, 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 they just wasn't lending. Listen, it's not great now. You know, we've got the stats on how bad it is for women, but there was nothing then. (laughs) So for me personally, the before and after is very different and life is a lot easier now, (laughs) a lot easier for me personally. And how long ago are we talking when you set up your first business? I think Grasshopper was 2006. That was my first official business. Before then, I always had something on the go. Were you one of these kids who... Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Tell us about that. At school, I used to subcontract out my babysitting. So I'd be watching Twin Peaks at home while someone else did the babysitting and I'd take 10%. I was the social secretary for the school parties and I'd sell the tickets twice. Just the whole thing. We used to have a thing in my friend's drive when we do like guess the weight of the tortoise, temp, you know, the whole thing and rig it. You know, in another life, I would have been doing Find the Lady or something or working and selling oil of Yule in the market in Nellefunken Castle. I love selling and I like, you know, that whole kind of customer interaction thing and the thinking on your feet and all that kind of stuff. So you're clearly really entrepreneurial, but anybody who knows you or is on your email list will know that you're also a great storyteller. How do you think that's helped you as you've been growing businesses? To be honest, I don't think I would have been able to create an opportunity for myself in food had I not had that. I think that was my USP because had a lot of things against me, not just structurally, systemically. But, you know, I'd never been to business school. I didn't have anyone explaining to me. You know, I I didn't have any information or knowledge. Just had a lot of confidence. And that came from, you know, a sense of performance or sort of theatrical side of my nature. I was very outgoing, very gregarious. And I like people. I like talking to people and I get excited about things. I'm an enthusiast. And that's kind of what the storytelling's tied into. So, When I was explaining something to someone that I wanted to do, I was quite good at getting the signals over what part of the story was interesting to them. So that aspect of selling, you know, selling an idea, let's say. So I've always sort of been good at that. I'm enthusiastic. I get very excited about something and I can get you excited about it. So I feel like that naive optimism and naive confidence is something that I experienced as well when I set up my first business. I don't think it's a bad thing. No, it's, it's an asset or a liability, depending what situation you're in, just like everything. It can move things forward, but it could also be, you know, painful and difficult and end up in the hole and back down the snake again. So I think that you're also a really open person, having met you and got to know you. Where would you say you draw the line when it comes to sharing details of your life or your business online? The boundaries are pretty clear. So things like dating lives, family life, you know, where I live, those kind of things. The inside of my home, you know, those kind of things I definitely don't share. I share my ideas and 
I share my own journey of growth. I think that's the part that seems open. So I say, you know, I'm going to try this. I don't know what's going to happen. So there's a certain vulnerability about that. But it's a bit of a paradox because actually it's an insurance policy. Because if you go to some customers and you can say, okay, I'm going to do this. I haven't done this before. This is why I think I can do it. This is what you get. This is why it's priced at this. Let's see how we get on. Then you're co-creating something. You're co-opting. They sign in knowing that. Whereas if you go to someone and say, this is perfect, you know, then the pushback, if you get it wrong, you're under a different kind of pressure. So I just believe in living and growing out in the open to the best of my ability, you know, and it's not always easy. It's not, it's progress, not perfection. And because we we incrementally experience ourselves and understand more about ourselves. I can sit here today and tell you all about my own personality flaws and traits and, you know, all the stuff we're going to go into. And then I can listen back years later and just think, what was I thinking? And, you know, I have done podcasts I've done on the podcast, just leave them where they are. Do you know, actually, what I've come to think in terms of those boundaries, the reason for those boundaries is privacy aspect is for two reasons. Firstly, because I think our electronic communications and the way that I communicate can foster a false sense of intimacy. And then people project onto me and then be upset when I'm not how they want me to be. So I want to avoid that, you know, the sort of, um, that's when I realised I didn't want to be an influencer. You know, the influencer syndrome, when they say, you said you love animals, but look, you've got that lipstick on and it hurts rabbits, whatever. So I don't want that to happen. So for my sort of psychic protection, (laughs) I want privacy. But also, you know, since the Black Lives Matter movement, and I really found myself falling short in that department, in my own education and my own acknowledgement of the white middle-class privilege that I've sort of surfed on through open doors for my whole life without realising, started educating myself on that. And one of the things that I realised was that having boundaries around my privacy was also more inclusive. For example, I love interior decorating. I really like it. And I really like to show you all the funny little things that I've done in my house. That would make me happy. It would feel great. And then you'd say, oh, I've done that. I've got that same fabric. But I know that that creates distance. It doesn't create intimacy because you'll just be thinking, hang on a minute, I've seen that lamp in the shop and it's 500 quid. I thought she was like us. She's got a 500 quid lamp. It creates distance. I don't want it to be about that. I want it to be about the work. Like I know what I'm doing here, which is, you know, that I want more women to start businesses. So I want that to be the work and I want to be here for that. And I think it's distracting if you know that that cushion costs 100 quid. So when you're sharing content and different types of content, what is it that you find works best, either in terms of engagement or in terms of actual inquiries, leads and sales? So I think the answer to this question is it's different for everyone and that there's no simple answer. So anyone listening to this podcast thinking, okay, I'm going to do what Fleur did and it's going to work for me. So the bad news is it won't. The good news is that If you just continue to be curious and explore different things without shutting down when something doesn't work, if you're able to remain open and curious and investigate and try different things and you find what comes naturally, what's easy for you, then that's, you know, when the magic happened. And I've tried masses of things and, you know, a bit of storytelling and talking about ideas that interest me. I'm interested in ideas. And that's what those emails are, the things that you know, stick in my mind the next day and I wake up and I thought, why is that bothering me? Why is that so interesting? Wow, I can't believe she did that. Why am I so surprised by that? And then I unpick something like that on an email and it strikes a chord. 
So it's kind of that. That's what it is for me. That's my kind of USP type thing, as you know, because you read them. Thank you. But that is different for everyone. Like some people, you know, give hard facts. You know, there's a lovely account on Instagram with a woman who worked in formerly in the European Union and she decodes politics on telly. And she just does it in a way that's absolutely brilliant. She's like a translator of actually what's going on on the rolling news cycle. So you don't have to watch it. So everyone finds a different thing. It's just like find the thing that, and the, and the clue is it comes easily. So when I write those emails, it doesn't feel like work. Whereas when I was on Instagram trying to create content then and I had a schedule or whatever, it felt hard. So that's interesting to hear you say that because you had quite rapid growth on Instagram when you first started out, didn't you? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I did. Yeah. That, that's for a variety of reasons. Like I think it's always appetite to say, it's very annoying having no followers listening to people with lots of followers talk about how they got them. So it's always appetite to say that there's many conditions which made that possible. Lockdown, the algorithm. So I did get lots of followers really quickly. And I can tell you, you know, how I did it. I showed up every day. I made a series of lives. I'm quite good at conversationally. So I sort of, I showed up a lot on camera. Again, I was quite honest. There was lots of things I did right, lots of things I did wrong, but I paid attention and I was nimble. That's one of my kind of superpowers, like being nimble, adjusting. And, you know, I have a lot of energy. I gave it a lot of energy. There's no doubt about that. I put the hours in. But it wasn't a natural fit for me and it wasn't particularly sustainable. And when Instagram started changing and getting to the pointing and the fridge dancing, then that was game over for me. And also I'd set myself a mental target. that I wanted 10,000 followers. And to see if that was possible and to see how fast I could do it. And, you know, I, I'd done that, but ultimately it's not my natural habitat. And you had a bit of a foray into YouTube as well, didn't you? Yeah, that was interesting. The thing is with YouTube is that from a data point of view, in terms of exposure, there's nothing like it, right? You can get in front of mind with more people on the planet faster than probably any other method currently. And, you know, we shouldn't ignore that. The fact that, you know, Facebook products, they're a closed world controlled by Facebook. Google is just, you know, just gets caught up in search engines. And if you can get the combination right and open the safe, you know, it's boom time. And obviously that was tempting. I was very curious about that. And so, you know, I tackled it in the way that I normally tackled it. I said, well, I don't really like the look of it, but let's see if we can do it in a way that feels right for me. Paid, got some help, did some learning, made some videos, did my best effort to sort of meet the criteria. And in the end, again, it just felt like... And you know how I realised was that Sarah, who I work with in Real Work, who was supporting me on that, she kept telling me, come on, Flo, you've got to talk about it more. And I just realised I hadn't talked about it. I said, yeah, I will, I will. And I never did. And then just my inner voice said, yeah, I don't want to because I'm not proud of it. I don't like the work. Because it didn't feel like me. And so I just was a bit cringy. So maybe I could have made a fortune if I'd be prepared to do the dance, the dance. But I just wasn't able to bring myself to dance that dance. It just wasn't me. And this is not at all to disparage people who flourish on YouTube. You know, there's space for everyone. But that just wasn't for me. And so we just binned it off. I think it's really interesting what you said about not wanting to promote it. So that was a big clue. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, it's a clue, isn't it? If you're cringing, and it's the same in emails that I've sent out. Now, I really love my emails. I would encourage you to sign up. We'll put the link in the show notes. Yeah, because I just think that, you know, they're great. I enjoy making them. They're from the heart. They're often funny. They're short. They don't ask too much. They're not very salesy. I've really got that right. But if you've been on my mailing list for a couple of years, you'll know that there's been some real growth there and some were really bad and shouty. And I send them in MailChimp. And then I sort of cringe a bit. And wait for the blowback. But in it felt like that. And now I feel like I'm throwing a bunch of flowers or a hug or an emergency parcel over it. It feels great. If we believe and feel that we're generating value, it's a win-win. And even unsubscribes just don't feel bad. It feels good. I was going to ask you about the response. How has the response changed from those uncomfortable early email days to now? Well, there wasn't any before. There was either people would sign and buy things occasionally or people would unsubscribe. But now people reply to them and they say, oh my God, I love your email, blah, 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 this is funny, or yes, me too, or, you know, it's chatty, it's lovely. Brilliant. I've just come off a group call with some clients on my group program, Fully Book Bootcamp, and two of them were describing the same thing, which is the absolute joy, which I think is what you're describing here, the absolute joy of just letting the real you come through. And again, with that, I'd say to people, it doesn't happen overnight. It's not an ITV thing when Hamilton Jones like gets your eye bag zapped and you come down the stairs and you're suddenly you. It's not that. It's a constant iteration. Sometimes we go forward one step and back two steps. We have disappointments. So it's just a commitment to feeling that out. And I think that as small business owners, because we have complete autonomy over not just our marketing, but over all of our business ideas, Sometimes to people, especially probably early stage business owners, that can feel like a real pressure. And what we're talking about is coming out of the other side of that and experiencing that kind of freedom and joyfulness. Is that how you would describe it? Yeah. I mean, I feel lucky every day. I don't really feel like I work. I feel like, yeah, I'm absolutely getting away with it kind of thing. You know, just I see people stressed and worried and talking about looking forward to their holidays. And I don't experience my life like that. I feel very well and very privileged and free. That's brilliant. There's a phrase that I heard, which was create a life that you don't need to take a holiday from. And that's what I'm aiming for, for sure. Yeah. Okay, I know that you have brushed shoulders with some impressive people during your entrepreneurial career. Are you ready to drop some names? And some terrible people. And going back a step, I don't really see my life and my career as separate in that way. So a lot of the people I've met have just been kind of in my life that I've come across. Because in the startup world, some of the people who are most impressive are quite niche. And your listeners, they don't want them, do they? You just want the famous people. (laughs) <laughs> we want the famous names. So I've shared a hand drive with Dame Vera Lynn. I had lunch with Zaha Hadid. Sandy Toxfig was an amazing one. That was meeting a heroine. I've been on Woman's Hour in the studio with Jenny Murray. That was good. What else? Um, I've worn JLo's pants. What? <laughs> we need more details on that one, please. Well, you have to go on the mailing list for that. that JLo's pants thing. It was it's a bit of a long shaggy dog story. Brad Pitt got stoned on my bed. My dog nearly killed David Cameron. Okay, so these don't sound like the kinds of experiences that most of us have in our day-to-day life. I've lived a life, Nikki. (laughs) Yeah, you have. I'm probably older than most of your listeners. I'm pushing 50 any minute. (laughs) Not by much. You are not by much. Okay, what about any missed opportunities that stand out? Yeah, I don't tend to miss out. 
Great answer. That's again an asset and a liability. If someone says this thing's happening, do you want to come? The answer is always a yes. So if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, I won't be looking back saying, I wish I'd had the courage to do that. I'm definitely jump off the pier and see what happens. So we've talked about the fact that you love your work and you feel like you're not really working now. Have there been any big standout moments during your career? Oh my gosh, so many. Being a sort of pioneer of independent businesses back in those days was a lot harder than it is now in terms of it was harder to get funding. It was harder to communicate with customers. You know, we made flyers, put up posters. It was harder to get information, harder to get taken seriously, harder to sort of get through a meeting without someone making a pass at you. It was grim. However, because there was so few of us, PR and stuff like that was just like falling off a log. On that basis, it was an absolute roller coaster ride. And nowadays, everyone has the internet. You can reach everyone, but it's very hard to sort of be noticed. And we really were noticed. So we had huge coverage, you know, like a half page in the FT, photographers sent round from the FT and the Observer to my flat, proper big setup photography shoot, you know, so masses of stuff in the broadsheets. Grazia called us the next big thing or something, whole full page in Grazia, we're so great. Whole pages in the Observer, we're so great, you know, woman of the future, blah, blah, blah. There was masses of that, which was fun. And, you know, going to events where there was, you know, lots of free things and that kind of stuff. And the whole thing was just weird. I mean, you get invited to something in Germany and then they'd play the final countdown and give you an award and their ticker tape would spray out of the ceiling and there'd just be loads of Germans with moustaches clapping. I mean, me and my sister would just be like, it's like being on LSD. And what was happening in your business at this time? Was your business a successful? Yeah, I mean, we were making money, but it wasn't funded properly. I mean, and that's the headline is that we didn't get proper funding established at the beginning. So we just started and hoped for the best. And we thought that once we were in Waitrose and on airlines and British Airways and stuff, then suddenly we'd be rich. But of course, that isn't what happens in a scale up business. And you constantly have to feed money into it. And we didn't know that. So we were constantly strapped and constantly running around sort of on the back foot in the hustle zone. Because you did achieve those things, didn't you? You were listed in Waitrose. Yeah, we were on British Airways, Waitrose, we were in, I mean, we were everywhere. We were in Soho House, mini bars. You know, we were just all over the shop. There's a whole list. The beer that I created was the House Lager at the Ritz Hotel. That was in Soho House. So all at the front end looked super shiny and amazing, but the back end was all fun, but also slightly terrifying. There was one really lovely moment, and this shows you how long ago it was. I got a text message on my phone, and this was before video text or camera phones saying congratulations on the Harvey Nichols window. And we just started selling our porridge in Harvey Nichols Food Hall. And I didn't know what they were talking about, and then they didn't reply. So I was living in Borough, and I got a black cab to Knightsbridge. And I remember it was pitch dark and raining. And I stood outside that posh hotel opposite Harvey Nichols and looked across the road into the windows. And in one of the windows, they'd taken like a whole truckload of our porridge and they'd made a sculpture out of our porridge pot. The whole window in Harvey Nichols. And it was completely out of the blue. I didn't know anything about it. It wasn't a PR opportunity that I'd paid a PR to get us. And I just remember standing there with all the traffic going past, like on my own. And again, there was no social media to report. There's no camera, nothing. Just standing there thinking, a few years ago, that was just a thought in my mind. And that product now exists, it's manufactured, it's creating jobs in a factory in the north of England. In a small way, you're putting meals on tables. And Harvey Nichols, like one of the fanciest stores 
on the planet think that it's beautiful enough to put in the window. That branding, that packaging, the design work, I drew the logo on the back of a napkin and then we scanned it into my sister's computer using a knocked off version of Adobe that we'd bought on eBay. And um, Harvey Nichols thought it was good enough to do that with it. I mean, that's a trip, isn't it? And again, you know, I say that like listeners enjoy that moment. It was lovely. But, you know, that doesn't happen now. Life is different. But I think what you're talking about, that satisfaction, that absolute satisfaction of creating something from nothing and seeing other people value it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. And, and that's the commonality there. That's experience of sharing it and that mutuality. And as well, as a woman, there was a sense of that's possible because any woman who goes about the world will have been told many times that many things are not possible or appropriate for them. You know, depending on where we're born and what country we're born in, we'll experience a different level of that. But that's something that all women, we all have in common. And to have achieved something so random and sort of big, just from my imagination, with no educational support around that at all. I mean, when Harvey Nichols first spoke to me on the phone about supplying them. When I phoned them, they said, um, what a distributor do you use? And I said, I don't know what that is, but if you tell me, I'll get one. And how did they respond to that? Yeah, they laughed and they said, okay, fine, call this number. And again, they wouldn't do that now. Most probably they'd be too busy and it would make them nervous that I wasn't going to supply them properly and they'd probably go for a different brand because there'd be people queuing up to do that. And in those days, there wasn't kind of, I was it. But equally, you created that opportunity for yourself by phoning them up in the first place. But then again, you can go another step on from that because, yes, I did have this enormous self-confidence and self-belief. But there's also privilege built into that as well because I was brought up, you know, I had went to a nice school and blah, blah, blah. I picked up the phone with my um, proprietal sort of sense of entitlement and then it happened. So there's that as well. It's not just because I'm amazing. (laughs) And you believe that when women start businesses, life gets better for all of us. Can you help listeners understand a bit more about that? Well, that's a fact. (laughs) Do you want the data on it? I would love the data on it. I was hoping you would say that. Okay. In 2020, the government dug into this problem. They got Alison Rose, who's the CEO of NatWest Bank, to get together with McKinsey, you know, the massive data crunching firm that crunches the data of the world, and to measure the problem of gender inequity in businesses. And so this is government data. This isn't from me. And they concluded that Businesses started by women, not men, create 21% more profit and 27% more social value. So that's enough evidence on its own. They then went on to give enormous number, check this out, if as many women as men started businesses in the UK, the UK economy would be 250 billion quid better off in four years' time. So literally, it would just save us all. That was published in the Alison Rose Review in 2020. And hopefully we can link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah, the Alison Rose Review 2020. Yeah, there's another thing called the Rose Report, which is something different. You can just Google it. It's available anywhere. Okay, Real Work has recently been awarded pending B Corp status. Yes. Meaning that you've achieved the first step in becoming members of the B Corp UK community. Can you share a little bit more about that and what it means both for your business and beyond? Yes, so B Corp is basically an internationally acknowledged licensing body 
that measures companies' impact on people and planet. It basically measures how ethical you are by doing an enormously extrapolated, detailed audit of your business. And you get a yes or a no. You know, you fulfill the criteria yes or no, like being organic. It's like the Soil Association for Ethical Business. And one of the reasons we're doing it is to show that small businesses can do it. One of the reasons we're doing it is that a lot of the content we supply in real work is online coaching. And over the last couple of years, the coaching industry around women has had various bumps in the road and scandals. And it's quite confused. It's quite early stage. We wanted to have something above the door that we could point to, to show that you don't just take my word for the fact that this is the sort of the John Lewis (laughs) business membership. But this is, you know, an internationally accredited opinion that agrees with me. It was so it's sort of shorthand for that. Also, I want to be better. And obviously, we go through the audit and I thought, oh, I'm going to pass that. And of course, I'm not because there's masses of stuff about the living wage, about maternity, even stuff like that. And I'm scrappy as heck and we've cut corners and you can't cut corners with B Corp. There is no corners you can cut. So looping back to the beginning of this conversation when I was saying, oh, you know, I'd sell oil of Eule in the market. You know, I do have that tendency. And again, that's an asset or a liability depending on the circumstances. I get things done. I take action. I move people forward. But being B Corp certified means that I'm not able to cut corners. So it, it mitigates against that side of my personality that can sometimes just skim over the details. Which you've obviously recognised. And then was it you driving the decision to counter that? Or did somebody else give you the idea? No, it was definitely me. And it was just to do with like, you know, we were talking about the Black Lives Matter movement and that whole sort of social feeling of like waking up into my whiteness, into my privilege and just making a firm decision. There's masses of stuff I needed to learn about myself and society. And I was going to start and just getting my head in it and getting help. So Real work made a whole lot of money in the first six months because it was just right time, right place. And so it was like turning a tap on and there was quite a lot of cash in the first six months. And, you know, as tempting as it was to trouser it and, um, you know, buy more cushions, because I've been around a long time, I understood that that was an opportunity and that real work was actually had something in it which was really magic. The way that women were coming together and sharing information and sharing the truth about their way they were working and supporting each other and moving forwards and getting results. I thought, oh my God, this is amazing. I want it to be great. I don't want to mess it up. And of course, the last two businesses, kind of, I had messed up in my own way. I dropped the ball a bit. I rushed things a bit. And I didn't really, really didn't want to do that with this. It seemed too important. I wasn't just selling food. This is people's lives at stake. I wanted to get it right. And so all of that money was reinvested. And we have a diversity, equity and inclusion team. We had a head of people and culture, Christine Clark from and Work Culturati, who's been doing this stuff for years. And yeah, they certainly hold me to account. <laughs> they really, really do. And sometimes I don't like it and I just have to suck it up and um, change. And you managed not to do a Peloton and just expand exponentially you manage to rein in those tendencies and invest in the things that matter for the future of the business. 
Yeah, just slow and steady. Because in real work, the main thing we sort of talk about is the fact that all businesses are different and all women are different. And it's not just about this old school model of being the fastest to grow or the fastest to exit or the fastest to this. We don't care about that. We just care about what's right for you. Where do you live? Who are you responsible for? How do you want your life to be? Do you like selling or not? Do you like creating or not? What's right for you? And I was talking about all of that stuff. But then in the background, I just fall into the trap of just racing off again. And I need to just hold back and say, actually, you know, I've started swimming in the sea with a group of middle-aged women who are amazing. It's pretty nippy. I nearly got hypothermia at the weekend, I have to say. Yeah, just doing stuff like that and doing more yoga and spending more time with my family. I want my life to be like that now. Like post-pandemic, I don't want to go back to the hustle. And I want this to sustain us. I don't need to be rich. You know, I don't need all the money. I just need some of it. And that's fine. And this is why women should be in charge of the world. (laughs) Exactly. You don't need all the money. I'd have that with the cereal thing. People would say, oh, you know, this is your competition, your competition. I say, wait, wait, you don't realise. Don't need all of the money. There's enough cereal eaters for all of us. It's fine. Relax. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you, Fleur. You're a wealth of knowledge and not only on business, but it's very interesting to hear your take on marketing because it's very aligned with a lot of the things that I believe and teach. Just before we finish up, I know that you're happy to admit to mistakes and learn in the open. Was there a big marketing mistake that you've made? This is a good one. Paying people to do things that I don't understand myself. That is absolutely true. Yeah, I've done that as well. And I just want to avoid something. I don't really understand it. Don't really think I can do it. Someone else comes along and says, oh, I can do that. And it's only a thousand pounds. Go down the back of the sofa, give them a thousand quid. They do something. It doesn't work. And then eventually I have to learn myself anyway. And I've done that. And that's not only once. That's a regular. That's on the regular. It's kind of normal. And if you can avoid that, then you are Jedi master level. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining me today. See you soon. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Goodbye. listening to my conversation with Fleur today on the Audience Growth Podcast. I hope it was as fun to listen to as it was to record. Next week, I'm back with episode seven and it's a solo episode. I'm going to be talking about how to market your business during a global crisis and some ideas for how you can help. So many of the business owners that I've been speaking to over recent weeks are struggling with whether they should be promoting their business and if so, what they should be saying and how they should be saying it. That's as well as wanting to use their business for good to try and make a difference. In next week's episode, we're going to be covering all three and you will leave with some ideas for what you can do to help. I hope to see you then.